Welcome to The Struggle is Real, a podcast by Family Bridges for modern parenting. Check out this week's episode. Your mother has to be nice to you. I'm the only one who gives it to you straight, salesman. No, you're just my anxiety. I'm just your personality. No, you're just a personal menace. If you were real, I'd never hang out with you. My brother delivers me a box of candies a week, and there's seven inside, so I pull out one piece of taffy a day. One day there was eight, and I threw the extra one away. Um, careful with that, you know. Anyway, lately I've been hoping that my collection is incomplete, but so far I've gone the last two months with only repeats. And every day I keep my hopes up. But I don't want more gray. I want pink and yellow or green and red. No more gray. But that's the thing about gray, isn't it? It has shades. All the shades are still gray. The Struggle is Real podcast starts in three, two, one. All right, that sounds very interesting. Well, welcome to this episode of The Struggle is Real. I'm Veronica Avila, and filling in for Omar Ramos is my guest co-host, Freddie Beckley. Welcome, Freddie. Thank you, Veronica. I'm thrilled to be here. It's nice to have you. And, of course, Dr. Alicia Laos is also on a special assignment. But joining us today as guest expert is Dr. James Hamawan. He's a clinical psychologist, researcher, and tech expert. Welcome again, Dr. James. Always a pleasure to be here with you guys. Thank you. Well, today we have a very important episode. It's called Stepping Inside the Troubled Mind. Specifically, we will be discussing depression and anxiety, how to identify it, and how to seek help. Take note, everyone, because today the struggle is real. It is very real. And to talk to us more about that, joining us via phone is Dr. Paul Meyer. He's a co-author of The Struggle is Real. He's also authored or co-authored more than 100 books selling over 8 million copies in over 30 languages. He's also the founder of the national nonprofit Meyer Clinics, which works very closely with Family Bridges. He's an ordained minister and is also a regular guest on a podcast talking about mental health. Welcome, Dr. Meyer. Yeah, hi, Veronica, and hello, uh, Freddie and Dr. James. It's a pleasure to be with you guys. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, absolutely. So, Dr. James, I think it would be a good idea to start by defining what depression and anxiety actually are. What are your thoughts? That's probably a good place to start. Depression is basically a state of mind where you have very little energy, very little motivation. You don't find a lot of joy in life. You don't find a lot of intention to get up and get out of yourself. You feel very down, very draggy. Mm -hmm. um, anxiety, on the other hand, is a situation where you're anxious. You feel keyed up. You feel a lot of energy, but it's very irritable, very jittery. You can't quite control yourself. You're not sure how to react. It's sort of the flight response, that fight and flight impression that people have. I'd like to add something to that, if I, if I can. When people hear the word depression, sometimes they think, you know, if they have a sad day, that's depression. Well, that's, that's just grief. You know, we all grieve mm -hmm. when sad things happen. But clinical depression, I'm a psychiatrist and, mm -hmm. and to a, a medical doctor, clinical depression happens when there's a serotonin depletion in the brain. And, and let me explain that. We eat like a banana and it's got tryptophan in it. And our body turns it into serotonin, which gives us love, joy, peace, patience, good sleep, happiness. When we have a lot of stress and we have a lot of anger on the inside or mm -hmm. false guilt or different things like that, it can deplete the serotonin or maybe 20% of the population inherit uh, low serotonin. And so when it's low, they may need an antidepressant as well as counseling or they may just need counseling. But that's a clinical depression is there's usually suicidal ideation, waking up at three in the morning and can't go to work. You know, that's severe depression. An additional thought on anxiety, I define anxiety as a fear of finding out the truth 
about your own thoughts, feelings, and motives. Mm. Yes. And uh, but although there can be a lot of reasons for anxiety, you know, stress, different things. But if you become, or if I become anxious all of a sudden, and there's no reason for it, usually it's because either uh, something I saw on TV or something that just happened, or for some reason something happened that triggered a memory inside of me, inside my unconscious thinking that I'm afraid to look at. You know, maybe if I get anxious around people that remind me of me sometimes. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. If I don't see my own faults, then I get anxious around somebody that, that has one like mine because the truth threatens to emerge into my mind what I'm afraid to look at. Mm-hmm. And so when we go to therapy, we dig and probe and try to figure out what it is people are afraid to look at. Like if I'm doing therapy with somebody and every time we mention their father, their eyes dilate, they uh, sweat a little bit and they mm-hmm. cross their arms and, and look away from me and quit having eye contact, then we know that's what we need to talk about about because that's what their anxiety is about their relationship with their father maybe in childhood or currently and and so that those are just some additional thoughts on depression and anxiety i'm just going to go back to that statement that you said uh, before dr meyer anxiety is the fear of finding out the truth about our own thoughts feelings and motives i was doing a little research for this podcast i went into the struggle is real which is the book that this podcast is based on written by dr meyer and dr alicia laos and this popped many times we walk around and we don't really realize that the anxiety that we may feel, I know it happens to me, has to do with the fear of finding out the truth about my thoughts and my feelings and my motives. That was something really, really interesting, something to think about for all the parents that are listening out there. So thank you for sharing that. I'd like to ask, have any of you ever experienced anxiety or depression and how did you manage it or how did you overcome it? Freddie? The level to which we've been describing clinical depression and anxiety, I can't honestly say that I have. When I think back about my early teen years, I know that that's a time when my brain is firing with all sorts of chemicals and my body is different every day. So I know that young adults are particularly susceptible Mm -hmm. to mental health disorders by and large. So I remember feeling pretty blue, maybe pretty anxious at those times, but I'm grateful to say, no, I I can't ever say that I've been, I might've had a few sleepless nights here and there, but nothing Mm -hmm. to the effect of what we've described as clinical depression or clinical anxiety. I've had uh, dips in my life that were where I felt really, really sad, but I was always able to function. I remember uh, in high school breaking up with, uh, well, my girlfriend was a year older than me and went off to college, and I thought we were going to end up getting married, but about two weeks after she got to college, she wrote me this Dear Paul letter, you know, met Rocky, you know, (laughs) and it hurt for about two years, you know, but I didn't stay depressed those two years, but every now and then I, I would remember what happened and feel sad, maybe have a cry or things like that. But I was still able to function, so I wouldn't call that a clinical depression. I would just call it uh, severe grief. I'm 72 years old, and so I've had other times in my life where I've had big losses. Mm-hmm. And when you have a big loss, you go through a lot of grief, and uh, you feel real sad for sometimes two or three months in a row. And so I'd say I was depressed, but I was still able to function and go to work. I wasn't a suicidal, and so I, I wouldn't call it a a clinical depression, but about half the population goes through a clinical depression sometime mm-hmm. uh, in their life. And I've had anxiety from time to time. As a psychiatrist, we all go to 
counseling to figure ourselves out, you know, so that we can do a better job of figuring our clients out. And so I went to three years of counseling and whenever my therapist would start to uncover something in my unconscious that I hadn't looked at before, like maybe fear of displeasing my father or different things, it would be like my mind, uh, I'd get anxious, but it'd be like my mind almost shut off. I'd get real tired all of a sudden, like I wanted to escape by falling asleep. I've had anxiety from time to time. I remember one Christmas morning, for example, I was real happy because we were getting ready to open presents with the kids and all that. And all of a sudden, I felt a wave of sadness and anxiety. I felt really uptight and really sad. And I had no idea why. So I stepped into the other room by myself and, and just prayed for insight. And it popped right into my head that, you know, my dad had died a few years earlier. And usually he was there with us on uh, Christmas morning. And then I just really missed him. Mm-hmm. And so I allowed myself to cry. I went ahead and cried for a couple of minutes and, and, and prayed about it. And I felt great again because I let my feelings out. Mm-hmm. And then I went back out with my family and we had, a, we had a good Christmas. But if I would have just stuffed it and pushed it down, then I would have stayed sad and anxious all day and not even knowing why. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. That's very personal. It touched my heart. I know that many of the parents that are listening out there can probably relate to your story Uh, Freddie, and to Dr. Paul Meyer's story, because I know each one of us has that something inside that we still haven't uncovered. We'll talk more about that. But before I know you have a couple of facts. Absolutely. So again, thank you so much for, for sharing your personal experiences. I do know that emotions can become toxic if they're not expressed. So your thoughts, again, are something for us to, to consider. Something else for us to consider are a few statistics from the Anxiety and Depression Association of America. I'm not sure if you knew that anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the United States, affecting 40 million adults. That's almost 20% of the population every year. And also, anxiety itself can stem from all sorts of complex risk factors, including genetics, brain chemistry, personality, and even life events. That's right. Now, we definitely, definitely have some work to do because the struggle is real. So why don't you begin by listening to our first sketch? This is called Your Worst Friend. Hey, Wyatt, look at you. You look so cute in your little suit. Thanks, Liz. I wish I wasn't the only one who wore a suit, though. Wyatt, you're the only one with style. Is my brother here? Right, yeah. No, I thought he'd come with you. He wanted to ride his bike. Well, uh, you want some punch or... Oh, hey, it looks like Katie just got here. Have fun. Uh, we're gonna go ask the DJ to play Duran Duran. Fun. Dance floor. All right, here goes. I don't know, Wyatt. I'm not gonna listen to you. I'm going to find my friends and have a good time. Why haven't they found you? Think about that. Maybe they didn't see me. <laughs> Who couldn't see you in that getup? You're like the Great Wall of China. People can spot you from space. I don't know. Maybe they were in the bathroom. You think Liz noticed you have a crush on her? I bet she caught your little stammer you get when she's nearby. Liz? No, she's nice. She wouldn't be mean like that. Yeah, I'm sure she only talks to you because you're so pathetic. You couldn't get an A on a test even if you cheated. I'm going to find someone to talk to. You're driving me crazy. Who wants to talk to the kid in a suit? You look like a phone book salesman. Mom says I look a red carpet. Your mom has to be nice to you. I'm the only one who gives it to you straight, salesman. No, you're just my anxiety. I'm just your personality. No, you're just a personal menace. If you were real, I'd never hang out with you. As long as you're listening, I am real. 
I'm going to get some punch. All right, I'll join you. I can't wait to make fun of you once you spill it. Hey, Wyatt, so the DJ said, uh, hey, you doing all right? You look pretty lost in the thought over there. Don't stammer, Liz. I feel a little overwhelmed, actually. <laughs> Don't we all? Wait, did you just tell someone about me? No! DJ said Duran Duran's up in a couple songs. Let's cool off with some punch for a second. I'd love some. Thank you. Hey, how about... Wait, hey, where, where's my voice going? What kind of punch is it? Red kind. Oh, good. I'm allergic to the blue kind. All right, that was 10-year-old Wyatt at the school dance trying to have a conversation with Liz, a teenager he has a crush on, but he's bullied by Murphy, his anxiety. Now, the negative bully voice inside his head bashes him left and right, but fortunately, Wyatt has the courage to lower the negative voice and starts to finally enjoy the night. Dr. James, what was Wyatt experiencing? Well, we would technically call that a negative self-talk in mm-hmm. the psychology circles, and that's basically what it is. It's talking to yourself negatively, often about yourself in a negative mm-hmm. way. The experience of having a voice in your head is something that's very common to people. We all internalize voices, our parents, our friends. Uh, We know what someone would say even if they're not there. People walk around wearing bracelets saying, uh, what would Jesus do to try and help them keep that voice more Mm. front and center in their head? Wyatt is unfortunately exposed to a negative voice in his own head, which is reflecting his own thoughts, his own anxieties, his own fears, and feeding them back to him. What he was able to do was to try and tone that down a little bit and check to see if what that voice was telling him was actually going on in reality. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Dr. Meyer, I have a question for you, if I may. Sure. We, we heard in this sketch that Wyatt found the courage to face his anxiety, but if he hadn't have found that, what could have happened to him, especially as he grew older? Well, if he wouldn't have uh, found some resolution to his anxiety, it probably would have gotten worse and worse, and he probably would have gotten very depressed in the future because depression is anger turned inward. And if you listen to those self-critical messages and you believe them, then you keep getting angrier and angrier at yourself for not being perfect. And you get more and more depressed the older you get. You also become more obsessive compulsive, we call it, more perfectionistic and and, uh, self-critical. And it would be horrible if you didn't get resolution to that. Thank you for that. Now, Dr. James, what are the signs that parents can look out for in kids when it comes to anxiety? And what triggers anxiety? Uh, When you're keeping an eye on your kids, you're looking to see if they're getting uh, more withdrawn, if they're not interacting with you as much as they used to, if they're maybe not talking as much about what happens at school or what their friends are doing, if they seem to be a little bit more disconnected. A lot of times there'll be physical symptoms. They might have stomach aches. They might have headaches. They might want to be sick from school, even though you can't find anything that seems to be physically wrong with them. As for what triggers it, it can be a variety of things. A lot of times it's social anxiety. A trigger is what people say or what they're afraid people might say to them at school. Mm. It may be a fear of strange food at the lunch. Room. I mean, different people have different things that are triggering to them, and knowing your kids is the best way that you can understand what might be something that's going to try and get them to withdraw into that shell. How early in their life can kids experience anxiety? Well, anxiety, you know, we can demonstrate that infants experience anxiety. I mean, wow. the question is to what level, to what extent, how severe, and how pervasive it is. I mean, again, anxiety in general is a common experience, but mm-hmm. the, getting into a state where it becomes persistent and it becomes disconnected from the initial trigger is where it starts becoming of clinical concern. Yeah, babies come out of the uh, yeah. <laughs> anxious and sad, you know, crying. Hey, yep. what just happened? You know, <laughs> give me some milk, you know, Absolutely. whatever. Um, Absolutely. Um, but that's a healthy anxiety, uh, I guess, right? That can be. Yeah, yeah. that's healthy, right? Research shows that 
about 85% of our adult personality is formed by the sixth birthday. Now, that doesn't mean you're locked into that. We can change no matter how old we are. Mm -hmm. If we uh, get therapy or we marry a good, uh, somebody that tells us the truth about what's going on in our lives or have good friends that are willing to confront us. But most of our personality is formed in the first six years of our lives. And three things determine how we turn out. Our genes, our environment, and our choices that we make. Mm -hmm. If a person has a real negative parent that's always criticizing them when they're growing up, especially in the first six years, but any time in their lives, then they develop that negative parent in their brain. Mm -hmm. So even in adult life, if the parent has died of old age or anything, even in late adult life, the person may still have that negative parent in their brain criticizing themselves. One thing we encourage our clients to do, and I'd like to encourage all of our listening family right now who's listening to this podcast to do this, is uh, put today's date down uh, on, on like a blank page at the back of your Bible or on a journal, somewhere that, that you'll keep. Mm -hmm. So put today's date down and write a little short letter to yourself and saying, dear, and put your name down there. I pledge from today on to be your best friend. I won't be perfect at it, but I'm going to make an effort not to say anything to you negative that I wouldn't say to my best friend under the same circumstances. That means like if you lock your keys in the, and you say, you stupid idiot to yourself, just think, okay, now wait, if my friend drove me and my friend locked your keys or his keys in the car, would I turn to my best friend and say, you stupid idiot? No, we wouldn't do that. No. We would tell our best friend the truth. We'd say, Hey, welcome to the human race. We all make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But we would lie to ourselves and say that we're a stupid idiot, even though it's not true. And so life is hard enough dealing with the truth. But if you go through life dealing with a, a terrorist living in your brain, that makes life a lot harder. But you can make a promise. I did that when I was 30. Uh, I tended to be self-critical. My dad was loving, but he was a strict German immigrant. And so if I got all A's and a B, he'd say, Paul, why did you get that V? And so I tended to do that. So I made that pledge to myself when I was 30, and it's helped me ever since. And then one other thing is that some people, like uh, Dr. James mentioned earlier, some people inherit uh, anxiety or mm -hmm. depression. And uh, some people, like parents, may have six kids, and they're all extroverts, except one's you know, just born real shy and has social anxiety and won't go to any clubs or, or, or won't go into public very much. And that can be genetic. If I see somebody like that, even as a 35 or 40-year-old adult, I can put them on any kind of GABA medicine, you know, like Neurontin or, or Lamictal or any of those. And uh, within a, a few weeks, they're totally normal. They can go to uh, crowds or clubs or anything. They, their extroversion goes away because it's a chemical deficiency in the brain. Hmm. And uh, some people are born with a low serotonin level, uh, like I mentioned earlier. And so they, they get depressed frequently, but they also become more obsessive compulsive. And so the, genetically, they're going to be real self-critical all their lives, even if they had great loving parents. So if I put them on a serotonin medicine, Prozac or any of the serotonin antidepressants, and usually I need to put it at a higher dose than normal if they're real perfectionistic like that or have obsessive compulsive disorder, sometimes double the normal dose. But within a month or six weeks, it's gone. The obsessiveness is gone and, and their negative self-talk, other than it being a habit that they may have to break, genetic negative self-talk just disappears. Mm -hmm. So if it is genetic, medication will make it go away. But if it's due to early childhood environment or other factors and uh, therapy and you making a promise to be your own best friend will make it go away. If somebody has a lot of anxiety and they're having panic attacks, things like that, and they come to see me as a psychiatrist, 
I can just medicate them, but that's a cop out if I just medicate them. But I can medicate them. I can make the anxiety go away in 10 minutes and they'll never see another ounce of anxiety the rest of their lives. I could give them a benzodiazepine that works in 10 minutes at uh, 24 hours per pill. And then I can put them on a different medication that's not addicting that will take a month. And if they stay on that, they'll never have anxiety again, but they won't deal with the issues that they need to deal with that are creating the anxiety. Mm-hmm. Or a person with panic attacks can go see a therapist and get over their anxiety with several months of therapy, but in the meantime, they're suffering. So sometimes people need a little bit of medication while they're getting the therapy, and then they don't need the medication later. My, my head psychologist here in Dallas tells me when people come in our day program, that's where they come seven hours a day, five days a week for three weeks, and we pack six months of therapy into three weeks and dig and probe and work out there, and their anxiety goes away from all the therapy they get. But he tells me not, Paul, don't give them too much uh, anxiety medicine because then they won't work on their problems. Thank you so much, Dr. Meyer, for saying that, because I do think it is important for people listening at home to know that anxiety and depression can be caused by a variety of different factors. And because of that, they can't all be cured by the same treatment. Mm -hmm. And to bounce back to what we were saying earlier, the difference between sadness and clinical depression, anyone that may say, you know, oh, just taking a shower or going for a run, getting a good night's sleep, that is just not possible for a lot of the people that we're talking about today. So, Dr. James, a follow-up question then for you. If we notice any of the symptoms of anxiety that you talked about earlier in ourselves, what kind of help should we seek? Obviously, the first thing is to keep an eye on yourself and make sure that what you're experiencing is something that is a bit pervasive and is very resistant to change. And if I'm going out and I feel anxious asking a girl out on a date, that's probably not clinical anxiety. But if I'm still anxious three weeks later about that date, that's probably not something we would normally see. And we can tell by looking at people around us. Where do they seem to be normal? Do they seem, how quickly do they seem to get over these things? We know if we're a little bit off. We can feel it. We can see it. And if we feel that we are in that position where we are having something that's a little bit more pervasive or comes up more often than we would expect and the things that usually work, people will tell you, you know, oh, sweat it off or run it off or just, you know, do something else, go get coffee and it'll go away. And it doesn't, that's probably a good sign that maybe we need a little bit more help. If there's one event and one cure doesn't work, no big deal. But if you have 17 events, and nothing is working, there's probably an issue there. And that's when you would go see someone like myself, Dr. Meyer, to evaluate whether it is a condition that needs to be treated by medication, whether it's something that can best be treated by counseling, a combination of the above. And there's nothing wrong with getting that additional help. That's what's going to help you be Mm -hmm. the best parent you can be, be the best person you can be. And uh, that's what you need to do. Great point. And one one more thought is that, Mm -hmm. you know, we see about a thousand people a day at at the Meyer clinics uh, nationwide, and probably 75 or 80 percent of them don't get any medication at all. Mm -hmm. If they come being depressed or anxious, they get therapy to work out the buried mm-hmm. anger or false guilt or or whatever they're anxious about, and the therapy gets them over it. About 20 or 25 percent will have anxiety or depression so severe that they can't go to school or they can't work mm-hmm. or things like that, and they may need temporary medication until they get the therapy. Mm-hmm. And then some people have genetic low levels of different brain chemicals, mm-hmm. and so they need lifelong medications in order to get over it. But most people need to see a good psychologist or counselor and they'll get over it if they dig and probe and discover what it is they're afraid to look at. I love that. Thank you for sharing. I'll just go back to a point that Dr. Meyer mentioned before when his colleagues told him don't give him too much anxiety medicine because then they won't deal with their problems. That's I think that's also very key. How much can you really go and, and resolve the issues that you have, and then also get the help, the medicine that you need. So thank you for that response, Dr. Meyer. Now our next sketch is called Handy Candy. Dear Handy Candy, 
longtime fan, first time letter writer. I ruined my baby teeth on your candies, and I'm probably ruining my adult teeth on them as well. <laughs> so, let me start by explaining I'm outside sensitive. Outside, um, something is creeping towards me. You know how you think that the sky is held up? To me, the sky is falling, and um, I appreciate having a ceiling between me and the sky as a little barrier of protection. So if you're understanding me right, I spend a lot of time at home. And at home, I have a series of nice routines. One of my favorites is eating your candy while enjoying the joke on your wrapper. Then I index the wrapper and organize them by flavor and joke. I've noticed that the jokes will all be different depending on the flavor slash color of the wrapper, and I've always wondered if this is intentional, like how the apple flavor never has the same jokes as the strawberry. Uh, my, my favorite joke, I should say, is when do you stop at green and go at red? A watermelon. <laughs> um, so, as to why I'm writing, um, my brother delivers me a box of candies a week, and there's seven inside, so I pull out one piece of taffy a day. One day there was eight, and I threw the extra one away. Um, careful with that, you know. Anyway, lately I've been hoping that my collection is incomplete, but so far I've gone the last two months with only repeats, and every day I keep my hopes up. So last week, I decided to build karma. You know karma, that every new joke, I would take a step outside. So far, no steps outside. And now I'm stuck to the idea. I'm the kind of guy that gets stuck to ideas. So as scary as those steps would be, I could really use some new jokes. Unfortunately, I can't think of any, and I don't know anyone who's really funny, since the television and the internet sort of make me uncomfortable. I have a very small circle of safety I like being in. Your candies fit nicely in there, but there's not much else. Knowing jokes makes me feel more ready to be normal. You understand? <laughs> um, maybe you get it, but I, I can't go out and get handy candies myself. I hope you keep writing jokes because I'd love to hear them. They don't even have to be good ones. I'll just be happy to get new ones. That'll mean new steps. If you're looking for jokes, and I'm no writer, I do have one my brother told me. Hey, did you hear the one about the agoraphobic? It's an inside joke. <laughs> Keeping my hopes up, Gunther Sachs. P.S. Thank you. Wow. That was so heart-wrenching heart in you a way. You could call it moving. It was very moving. At, at a, one step at a time, but mm -hmm. absolutely would. That's why this episode is called Stepping Inside the Trouble Mind, is, you know, we're really endeavoring to present these maladies from inside the minds of the people that experience them. Exactly that. This is a, a true story. I'd like to mention that this story was inspired by Confessions of an Agoraphobic Victim, which was published by the American Journal of Psychology. That was Gunther a guy in his 20s who's agoraphobic, which is a person who's afraid of crowds or being out in public. And that's why he talked about having the ceiling as the shield. 
he spent the last few years at home and collects the gum wrappers with jokes from his favorite candy company. And he wrote them a letter to ask for new jokes because he made a deal with himself of taking one step outside of his house for every new joke. Goodness. Such a big cry for help. It, it really touched my heart. Mm-hmm. How does a phobia develop, Dr. James? Typically, you'll see a, a severe clinical phobia developing in response to a specific event or sequence of events that all have something in common. Um, one of the most common examples that we may have seen uh, lately is people coming back from battlefields who are afraid of fireworks. I and mean, the, the sound of explosions have come to be associated with something that could potentially be dangerous in their brain. In the case of someone like Gunther here, it may be very small things. It might have been you know, in preschool, he went to school and some kid called him a name. And then another time he went to the store and someone gave him wrong change and called him an idiot. These little things that his brain put together as, well, when I go outside, these bad things happen. Mm-hmm. And he kind of made this connection that may not even be correct, but he connected, when I go outside, bad things happen. And then eventually he flipped it around to, if I go outside, all these bad things will happen. And as that kind of thinking takes over, it com- becomes this paralyzing fear. And that is what a phobia is. So we've, we've just heard how a phobia like that can develop. Dr. Meyer, I'm curious, once we are stuck inside something like that, how is it that we're able to escape? Okay. First of all, a person that has agoraphobia needs therapy. But therapy can take a long time. I can medicate somebody with agoraphobia and get them over it in, a, you know, a week or two on medications. Mm-hmm. But then they need therapy to resolve what caused it. And I agree with what Dr. James is saying. It can be uh, bullying at school or a trauma or different things or, or even a traumatic home that can trigger it. The more out of control we feel when we're growing up, Mm -hmm. Or at any time in our lives, even as an adult, like a soldier. Mm -hmm. The more we feel out of control, the more controlling we tend to become to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so people who have a lot of experiences where they feel out of control will become more uh, anxious and and eventually they can get agoraphobia where they they hide from society altogether. Another contributing factor is if you're the oldest child in your family, when parents have, let me put it this way, all of us as parents, have things inside of ourselves that we're afraid to look at. You know, it could be uh, sexual temptations, it could be fear of rejection or repressed anger or different things. And when we have kids, the oldest child of the same sex is the one that's going to remind us the most of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so in most families, I've found that dads are toughest on the oldest boy and moms tend to be toughest on the oldest girl. And so they become more and more perfectionistic uh, and more prone to develop anxiety and agoraphobia later in life. 15 of the first 16 astronauts for the United States were firstborn sons. Now, that's not a coincidence. You know, they they were perfectionistic enough to make it to the moon and back. So sometimes your position in the family can even make a difference. And then some people are born with obsessive compulsive traits or anxiety. And uh, as a result, they feel self-critical and out of control just because of their genes. People who have obsessive compulsive traits catastrophize. Mm -hmm. They see the worst in everything. The sky's falling, like the the boy in the Mm -hmm. skit said. I feel like the sky's falling, and so I stay inside to protect myself. And so the more obsessive-compulsive we are, whether it's from childhood experiences or whether it's from genetics, the more we can uh, develop agoraphobia. And so forcing yourself to get out, that's one 
the thing you can do, but digging up the root causes is, is usually the best thing to do and, and figuring out uh, why uh, you're so afraid or if somebody uh, had a real uh, bully that kept bullying them, I'll put an empty chair. I'll use what we call a gestalt technique and we'll put an empty chair in front of that uh, child or adult and pretend like that person's sitting there and have them actually talk to that person. Mm-hmm. And when they do that for a few minutes, they almost always start crying and and their emotions come pouring out, and then they feel a lot better, and the, and the anxiety goes away. So we can medicate it and make it go away in a, two or three weeks, you know, with uh, uh, strong uh, medications, but either a major tranquilizer or GABA medicine. But then, again, you're not resolving the conflict that caused it. So we can relieve the pain of it. And lots of times we will do that, give them some medication again. If they're agoraphobic and they can't go to work or can't go to school, then, of course, you want to get them functional as quick as you can. But then we get them into therapy, which uh, takes a longer time, maybe six months or nine months or sometimes longer. We gradually withdraw the medication and they do just fine without it once they've resolved their conflicts. Thank you, Dr. Meyer, for those points on phobia. Now, for the final section of our episode today, we will be focusing on depression. Now, we all know that when someone has sadness, that can often be referred to as the blues. But when that sadness becomes overwhelming, it can feel like everything else in our life is fading away. That's why we have titled our last sketch, The Grays. Let's have a listen. Amy, you walk in the room and it's a major chord. Not today. Uh Uh-oh, looks like someone's going to ask me to go get ice cream instead of play with me again. No, no ice cream. No ice cream? Where's Amy? She's stuck inside a storm cloud. Do you want to grab your guitar and we can start? Can we start with my journal? New lyrics. I don't know, just some stuff I wrote during lunch. You're not eating with the other kids? What about Ravi and Sharon, who you wrote that song about? I can't sing that right now. Okay, I understand. Well, read me what you got. Gray. 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 Okay, gray me. What kind of music do you want to write with those lyrics? Oh yeah, and I also wrote, my brain sucks in the middle. This sounds like a particularly bad lunch break. Case of the blues? No, it's the grays. Flypaper. What? I had an old girlfriend who kind of struggled with that. She called it her flypaper mind. Her thoughts were like little flies and everything was getting stuck in there. Nothing was coming out? I mean, kind of. Some of my thoughts are like flies. They buzz. Those are some lyrics you need to write down. Flies in a storm cloud. You know, we never really worked on a sad song. But I don't want more gray. I want pink and yellow or green and red. No more gray. But that's the thing about gray, isn't it? It has shades. All the shades are still gray. Let me play you my favorite chord. It's nice. How would you describe that chord if you couldn't just say nice? It's uh, deep. It's warm. How much light is in that chord? Is it a lamp or a fluorescent light bulb? Definitely not a fluorescent light bulb. What if I play it with these chords? How does this feel to you? You want to play these chords with me? Ugh, I, I wish it could sound crunchier. Yeah! That kind of noise, huh? Like a distortion pedal. 
What's that? It's an effect you put on your guitar that makes it sound all distorted. My life is a distortion pedal. I could bring some pedals that we could play around with next week. Um, I think that would be nice. But until then, play along with me. It sounds like a winter kind of happy. Like you just came in from the cold. Amy, that's beautiful. I think we just found the song that you want to write. Can I get it one more time? I'm going to try it on my guitar. That was beautiful. I have to say, I really love this sketch. I loved the way that the counselor took Amy, who is the young girl we heard here, through this musical therapy process from being really sad to actually being not super happy, but just kind of transitioning into into being a happy girl again. Mm-hmm. How important is it that we take a therapy that fits, I guess, the, the client's need? Dr. James, first of all, what's going on through this young girl's mind in the beginning? And then how important is it that we adapt the therapy that fits the client. When you say what's going through the mind, that's actually a good choice of phrase there. Um, when someone is really severely depressed, clinically depressed even, that cloud mentality, that storm cloud that she's mm-hmm. talking about is an apt analogy. It is like everything is kind of closing in. There's no color in the world. It's cold. It's wet. It's draggy. The thoughts aren't really going very fast at all. They're kind of plotting or like they said, getting stuck in flypaper. It's like mm-hmm. you just can't move. Depression is a very much a sedentary you know, kind of curling, turning inward. The importance of finding the right kind of treatment for that, you need to have someone who understands where they're at and can give them some guidance to try and say, you know, yes, you are in this cloud right now, and that's okay. It's okay to be in a cloud. It's okay to see all the 50 shades of gray or a thousand shades of gray that might Mm -hmm. exist in that cloud. It's not just monotony. There's more there. And hey, as you're looking at those different shades of gray, you can see, hey, maybe there's just a little bit of pink over here, a little bit of white over there. Mm -hmm. You know, that winter kind of happy, you're kind of getting maybe that sun on the snow, just a little bit, a tiny sparkle, because you need to kind of guide them slowly back out of that state and understand that it's okay to be there, but they don't want to be there. They don't want to be stuck there. That flypaper needs to let go, and you need someone who can help them find what activities are going to help kind of pull that back a little bit and help them start taking those steps to find the mobility and find the energy to overcome it. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm a, a, an artist by trade. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for creativity. Yes. And when I'm feeling in a funk, I particularly enjoy creative activities that aren't reliant on language mm-hmm. for me to express myself. Mm-hmm. I feel like words often can make me feel like I'm putting myself in a box or maybe that I don't have the right words to express anything. But if I use sound or if I use paints or pastels or movement to sort of figure out what am I really feeling, things will come out of me that I didn't expect and will Mm -hmm. conjure an emotional experience that I can then put into words and will help me move past it. But that's just, that's one way Mm -hmm. I know to treat feelings like depression. Dr. Meyer what are some other methods of treating depression? Well, I, I like what Dr. James said, is that there's a variety of therapies that can uh, be effective, a, a whole variety of things. When we hire a therapist at a clinic, um, we, we ask them, what techniques do you use? And if they, mm-hmm. if they just name one, like we always do this kind of therapy, or <laughs> I always do that kind of therapy, then we don't want to hire them. Yeah. We want to hire somebody that will use a variety of therapies. And I know with kids, mm-hmm. play therapy is one thing that helps them. In fact, uh, for those of you in our listening family right now, who are listening to this podcast, if you have any kids, do this thing where you can do a little therapy on them right now. Get a blank sheet of paper and give them some Clark crayons and ask them to draw their family. If your child is depressed, 
he might make mommy big or daddy big, or if there's one parent that's more dominant than the other, he'll make that one the biggest, but he'll make mommy and daddy and his brothers and sisters and the dog and stuff. If he's got a pretty good view of his family, that they'll have eyes and things like that. But then your little boy or your little girl might draw himself in a grayish color or a dull color instead of a bright color, and they won't have eyes in the face, and they'll be tiny. They'll be real tiny. They might be by one parent or the other uh, if they're overly dependent on one parent or different things. But you can sort of analyze the drawing to see how they feel. And uh, talk therapy is usually uh, the, the most effective. If somebody's a child or an adult and they've become real depressed, then uh, when they see a therapist, a good therapist will dig and probe and try to figure out, again, what's going on inside them that they don't even see. Men in particular, uh, and little boys, lots of times stuff their feelings more than women do. And Mm -hmm. that's why women live five years longer than men. (laughs) Um, I know uh, Paul Simon, a famous singer, Simon and Garfunkel, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote a song, uh, this little skit reminded me of, there's a wall in China a thousand miles long Mm -hmm. to keep the foreigners out. They built it strong, but there's a wall inside me that no one can see. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to get next to me. And so some of us build walls in in our souls, and most depression is anger turned inward. So it can be uh, legitimate anger towards somebody that's abusing us or controlling us, or it can be uh, anger at ourselves, which is often false guilt, because if people expect too much Mm -hmm. of, of us and we can't be perfect... Then we get angry at ourselves for not being perfect, which is ridiculous, but it, it, but we get depressed because it's uh, anger again, stuffed anger. And then, like we said, some kids and adults inherit depression, and, and uh, when you inherit it, then medication is the only thing, uh, lifelong medication is the only thing that will keep inherited depression away. But uh, for most people that are depressed, therapy will get them over it, whether they're children or adults. If they'll look at the things inside themselves and, and talk it out and cry about it and mm-hmm. make better decisions uh, of what to do. And uh, including music therapy or some people even use uh, equine therapy where mm-hmm. they go horseback riding and things yes. like that wow. or take care of an animal. A whole lot of different things can help. But uh, try that drawing thing with your kid today. Thank you. Wow. Thank you, Dr. Mara. I, I just want to say thank you for the suggestion of that drawing exercise and for all of the advice you gave. I just want to punctuate for our listeners a few things that really resonated with me because mm-hmm. I, I do know that there is a stigma associated with psychological and emotional well-being in a way that our culture doesn't have associated with, say, physical well-being. Mm-hmm. Right? You see billboards for gym memberships and having the perfect body, and no one's going to judge you if you want to improve yourself in that way. But we really do have to fight for the benefit of ourselves and our children, this stigma on mental wellness. So mm-hmm. I do, again, want to say writing a letter to yourself as if you are your own best friend or a loved one can really put you in a positive mindset. And lastly, a question that you posed is if you are seeking treatment for yourself or your child, it's okay to ask them, what treatment would you have in mind for me? Mm -hmm. And if they seem closed-minded or they only have the one, I would say keep looking at other options. Yes. Yes. I'll just piggyback right on that one. I thought that was great advice for the parents that are listening. Don't be afraid to seek help. I know this podcast has personally hit home and it has given me ideas of what to seek when looking for counseling for myself and for my kids and looking for those different options that they are available because it's it's okay to seek help. Thank you one, for that. One more thing I'd like to say, Veronica, is that the teen, the reason you need to get them help is because a lot of children and teenagers commit suicide. Mm-hmm. And I saw a study of 90,000 teenagers done by 13 different mm-hmm. psychologists and psychiatrists. And the teen suicide rate is 300% higher now than it was 50 years ago. Wow. About one out of 30 teenage girls will attempt suicide in the next 12 months. 
and uh, one out of 40 boys will attempt it in the next 12 months. And one out of 50 kids will have a parent die of suicide in the next 12 months. And so it's a lot higher than people think. Now, more guys die of it than girls, even though they attempt it less because they use more violent means. But we're living in an age where kids do a lot of Facebook uh, interaction instead of having uh, uh, one-on-one interaction. Mm -hmm. And and they look at all the other kids on Facebook and see what ideal lives they have because everybody puts their best pictures forward, you know? Of course. And they think, what a horrible life I have compared to that Facebook life. And all of our lives are horrible compared to the Facebook lives, you know? And so a lot of kids get uh, more discouraged than they should by seeing the Facebook lives. And one thing they found in that uh, study of 90,000 teenagers is that Teenagers that went to church and prayed and uh, were part of a youth group had a much lower suicide rate than kids that didn't. And I think mm-hmm. that's something that's missing in our culture today is uh, back when I was growing up, most people went to church and youth group. And uh, that was a big part of my social life growing up. It meant a lot to me and it still does. And, you know, I think a minority of mm-hmm. kids get any kind of uh, spiritual life today. And it's important. Spiritual life is very important, too, to, for good mental health. Those are great points. And I think I'd like to invite you and also Dr. James for a future podcast on teenagers specifically mm-hmm. and all, everything that they go through because it's important that we also talk about that. We know that this topic, we can expand on it for hours. Unfortunately, our time is limited for today's podcast, but we will address other mental illnesses in future podcasts. Again, the invitation is open for both of you. Mm-hmm. And we hope uh, that you can make it. Dr. Meyer, what can we learn more about you? People can call. 1-888-7-CLINIC, and somebody will talk to them 24 hours a day, seven days a week to give them some uh, guidance as to where they can get help if it's not with one of our clinics somewhere else. Or go to our website, www.meyerclinics, M-E-I-E-R, meyerclinics.com. We have a national chain of nonprofit clinics, and and so we try to get help to anybody that needs it and as much as we can. And, and uh, so go to our website and find uh, the clinic nurse to you, and we, we appreciate you doing that. Thank you so much, Dr. Meyer. Now, as Veronica mentioned, it is almost time to go, but before we do, we have one final segment, Keeping It Real. Dr. James, what final thoughts do you have for our listeners on the topic of anxiety and depression to help them keep it real? Thank you for leading. Um, I think for parents, it's very important to remember to be a good role model for your kids. Don't always try to be perfect. Try to put on this face like everything's fine. If you're anxious, if you're depressed, if you're sad, show them how you deal with it. Show them that it's okay to have those feelings and you can get on with your day and go through it. And if you need more help than that, it's okay to say, yeah, you know, I can't manage this on my own and this is how I get more help. And then just be sure you listen to your kids because you're the one who's going to see them every day. You're the one who's going to be the first person to notice if they're acting different, if they're Mm -hmm. talking different, if there's something about them that may be a warning sign that maybe they need a little more help. And there's nothing wrong with anything that they are or anything that you did if you or them need extra help. It's about being happy and healthy. And that's the key point. Absolutely. Thank you for that. There's hope. There's hope, parents. Seek help. That ends this episode of The Struggle is Real. Take care of yourself and yours. Remember, you can find more resources on this topic and more at FamilyBridgesUSA.org. You can also keep up with The Struggle is Real on social media with the hashtag The Struggle is Real or hashtag TSIR. As always, thank you for tuning in. We are Freddie Beckley. James Amon. And Veronica Avila. Till next time. This was The Struggle is Real by Family Bridges. For more ideas on parenting, get your copy of The Struggle is Real by Drs. Paul Meyer and Alicia Laos on FamilyBridgesUSA.com.